The well-known adage is profoundly true, brethren, that the life of a minister is the life of his ministry. And it is for this reason that we're engaging our minds and hearts in this unit of our study, considering the subject, the life of the man of God in the pastoral office. As we embark upon this third lecture, let us do so remembering not only those words of John the Baptist that I underscored yesterday, a man can receive nothing except it be given from heaven, And the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, who said, Without me you can do nothing, but add to those two very simple but profoundly important statements, the word of our Lord Jesus, Ask, and it shall be given. So let us unite our hearts, asking in the confidence that it shall be given as we come into our lecture today. Let us pray. Holy Father, we thank you that your word constantly urges us to draw near, to seek your face, never discouraging us from coming again and again and again and again, spreading out before you the honest acknowledgement of our need, of our native ignorance and dullness, our proneness to error and to sin, And so we come as a group of needy men this morning, pleading your promise that if we ask, it shall be given to us. If we seek, we shall find. And if we knock, it shall be opened unto us. Lord, we seek, we ask, we knock. And we come asking, seeking, and knocking for all the help of your Spirit that we need in this hour Uphold your servant as he seeks to be faithful to your word in addressing this vital theme. Undertake for your servants who with eager hearts sit ready to receive that word. Together we cast ourselves upon you in the expectation of faith and in the confidence that you have not said to us, Seek my face in vain but that your promises are yes and amen to us in Christ. And in that promise we rest in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 In the general introduction to the consideration of this subject of the man of God in the pastoral office, I first stated, explained, and then demonstrated the scriptural basis for what I have called the foundational or central axiom, and it is this. As a general rule, sustained effectiveness in pastoral ministry will be realized in direct proportion to the health and vigor of the redeemed humanity of the man of God. We then began to take up the first of five major categories of the life of the man of God in the pastoral office, namely his life before God spiritually, intellectually, and then physically and emotionally. As I focused upon the spiritual life, I stated the principle that you and I must strive to maintain a real 
expanding, varied, and original acquaintance with God and his ways. After explaining the significance of the key words of that statement, and before identifying the means ordained by God to pursue this goal, I did two things. First, I underscored some vital observations concerning those means that are ordained of God to the end of this varied, original, expanding acquaintance with God and his ways. And I underscored the fact that they are integrated and interdependent. Secondly, that they are all basic and foundational Thirdly, that they are ultimately useful only because God has ordained them as a means by which we draw upon the fullness of grace and life that is in our Lord Jesus. And then I close the lecture by underscoring what I call the ordinary context within which we cultivate this acquaintance with God and his ways. And I made the statement that for God's people in general, and especially for the man of God in particular, the context of a growing acquaintance with God is that of suffering, tribulation, affliction, temptation, and opposition. In this lecture, we will at least begin to consider the five scriptural disciplines ordained by God to be the means of our maintaining a real, expanding, varied, and original acquaintance with God. The first of these means is what I'm identifying with the words, the discipline of the devotional assimilation of the Word of God. It's not my purpose to prove by careful exegesis of many texts that there does exist a profound relationship between spiritual health and the assimilation of the scriptures. The frequently quoted texts, such as the ones listed in your printed outline, demonstrate beyond any reasonable doubt that there is indeed such a relationship. And those texts are listed for you. Certainly Psalm 1, 1 to 3 would suffice to prove the point. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. He does not stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He, not another, but such as is described, he shall be like a tree planted by the river of waters. He is fruitful, his leaf is evergreen, and whatsoever he does prospers. Certainly that text is simply a specimen text indicating that fruitful, God-glorifying, life-giving power in the child of God is to be found in an intimate connection with this assimilation of the scriptures. However, there is a summary statement by Thomas Murphy in his book in Pastoral Theology that states this issue in a most compelling way. Page 76 of Murphy on Pastoral Theology. This is a very important duty for every Christian. 
The word is the great instrument by which the spirit increases holiness in the hearts of believers. It is by faith in that word that men are ordained to be sanctified. Christ teaches the necessity of the truth when in his great intercessory prayer he made sure of its efficacy by the petition, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. The Spirit will honor his own truth and will make it effectual. It is by Christ, the bread of life, that the soul is to be nourished, and Christ is to be found chiefly in the Scriptures. From the Scriptures come light and heat and strength and impulse, all of which are important elements of true godliness in the soul. Not only to the young man, but to all who ask a similar question, wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way, comes the inspired answer, by taking heed thereto according to thy word. Oh, how the devout study and personal application of the scriptures enrich the soul. A simple passage devoutly meditated upon makes the heart better. Then the growth in piety which is produced in this way is not ephemeral or spurious in any sense. It is healthy and will be permanent in its result. And then he goes on to underscore how this is especially needful in the life of the man of God. The next paragraph Now there is special need for the devotional study of the Bible by the pastor. His piety should be of the most elevated type. His own spiritual wants, as well as those of the people to whom he ministers, demand that it should also be progressive, ever rising and expanding as his work becomes more solemn. And nothing, nothing, will meet these requirements but a piety that is truly scriptural. The next paragraph. For the minister especially, it is very important that his soul be put in direct contact with the word of the Lord. He should get as near as it is possible to the mind of the spirit. The very thoughts of that spirit he should endeavor to think over in his own heart the soul will generally become assimilated to him whose inspired utterance are kept constantly and impressively before it. And then down to the bottom of page 78, the last sentence, adopt some rule of systematic devotional reading and let it not be intermitted for any trivial consideration. You're going to hear that sentence again before the lecture is over today. Adopt some rule of systematic devotional reading. Let it not be intermitted for any trivial consideration. Now, I am not suggesting that your more technical and official interaction with the Scriptures should not be carried out in anything less than a devotional disposition of mind and of heart, in tracking down the meaning of a Greek or Hebrew word, tracking down the historical background of a passage. All of it should be done in a spirit of utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit. 
in the devotional consciousness, I'm doing this work in the presence of the living God to whom I shall give an account for this labor. That's the devotional spirit that should mark all of our dealings with the scriptures. However, I'm asserting that in the most plain way possible, if you and I are to experience a real, expanding, varied, and original acquaintance with God and his ways, we must, we must have regular dealings with God and his word, which have as their primary and conscious focus, not preparation for the feeding of others, but the nurture of our own souls in the presence of God. That is, we are not dealing with the word of God while preparing to speak that word to another, but dealing with that word to have God speak to us about ourselves and about him and about his ways. Now I want to say three specific things uh, concerning this devotional assimilation of the Word of God. Number one, it ought to be structured and consistent. Here you have Murphy's words. Adopt some rule of systematic devotional assimilation of the Scriptures. It ought to be structured and consistent. There must be time marked out for this discipline and time jealously, I love the old word, assiduously guarded for this discipline. From the side of human responsibility and activity, just as physical health is determined primarily by the ordinary as opposed to our extraordinary physical disciplines of diet, rest, and exercise, so with the health of our souls. Listen to the words of Jeremy Taylor, quoted by the saintly Robert Murray McShane. Bonar writes concerning his friend McShane, his diary does not contain much of his feelings during his residence in Dundee. His incessant labors left him little time except what he scrupulously spent in the direct exercises of devotion scrupulously spent in the direct exercises of devotion. But what we have seen in his manner of study and self-examination at Larbert, his previous sphere of labor, is sufficient to show in what a constant state of cultivation his soul was kept and his habits in these respects continued with him to the last. Jeremy Taylor recommends, quote, If you mean to enlarge your religion, do it rather by enlarging your ordinary devotions than your extraordinary. This advice describes very accurately the plan of the spiritual life in which Mr. McShane acted. He did occasionally set apart seasons for special prayer and fasting, occupying the time so set apart exclusively in devotion. But the real secret of his soul's prosperity lay in the daily enlargements of his heart in fellowship with his God 
at the riv- as the river deepened and flowed on to eternity, so that he at last reached that feature of a holy pastor which Paul pointed out to Timothy, his profiting did appear to all. In the midst of the next paragraph, he says, his morning hours were set apart for the nourishment of his own soul. A minimum of three chapters in the word of God daily, beginning with the singing of a psalm to open up the channels of his direct spiritual intercourse with his God and with his Savior. The following texts have no meaningful implementation in our lives without a commitment to a structured and consistent devotional assimilation of the word of God. Psalm 1-2, again, a specimen of the other texts that are listed. And in his law, he meditates day and night with a thousand things that clamor for the focused attention of our minds. There will be no day and night meditation in the word apart from a commitment to a structured and consistent pattern for the devotional assimilation of the word of God. Secondly, this devotional assimilation ought to be systematic and comprehensive. According to 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, we need the complete Bible to make us complete as well as competent men and servants of God. You remember that Paul has reminded Timothy that from a nursing babe he has known the sacred writings which, first of all, verse 14, are able to make us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And no doubt Timothy could reflect back on those portions of the sacred writings which he learned from his mother and his grandmother and which became effectual to drive him out of Adam and into Christ himself. But then Paul goes on to say, all scripture is inspired of God and is also profitable, Timothy, to another end not only to make you wise unto salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, but the whole of God's revelatory, inscripturated data is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness, not primarily that the man of God may have a textbook by which to communicate the knowledge of God to others, but that the man of God may be perfect. And that's the peculiar term that Paul uses of Timothy. But thou, O man of God, flee these things. Timothy, that book by which you came to the knowledge of Christ is the same book that is in your hands to the end that you yourself may be a complete Christian, thereby furnished completely unto every good work. Then and only then does he say in his final charge, chapter 4, verse 2, preach the word. What word? The word that is continually making you more and more a complete man, furnishing you for every work, not simply in giving you the intellectual stuff that forms the substance of your preaching, but what it's doing in you as man of God, so that you, in a very real sense, become your message. Surely, 
Texts such as Matthew 4, 4, in which our Lord quotes from Deuteronomy, point in the same direction. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God has deposited a broad range of spiritual vitamins and minerals and nutrients in the full corpus of Scripture. And he knows that we need them all for our spiritual health. The same way in his creative wisdom, God has deposited in certain plants, in certain vegetables, certain fruits, and even in meats that he has given us to eat, vitamins, minerals, nutrients. And we need a balanced diet to be whole and healthy men physically. So it is spiritually, brethren. We need Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God to the end that we may have vigorous Christian life and experience. So then, I'm urging you, my brother, if you have not committed yourself to this or if you've committed yourself to it in the past and you've backslidden from commitment to it, you and I must adopt some plan by which we cover the full range of inscripturated truth in a reasonable length of time. Many of you are familiar with McShane's daily Bible reading schedule. The Banner of Truth used to publish it. If they don't, it's being published all the time. There's no copyright on it by different publishers. And then just the simple pattern that I have found helpful over the years, two chapters in the old, one chapter in the new, will basically take you through the entirety of the scriptures in a year. And I have found it to be of tremendous help to be reading through continually the Psalms. I get through about once every nine months, start in Psalm 1 and pray through a psalm a day. Unless you get into one of the real larger psalms, break it up into a day or two. And then for a number of years, the discipline of reading one chapter in Proverbs according to the month, the day of the month. So if I missed the 7th on March, then come April, I would get the 7th chapter. And so whatever form we take, we must commit ourselves to some pattern, some structure that takes us through the whole of inscripturated revelatory data within a reasonable length of time. And so, brethren, if this morning you did not come to the chapters for today, I solemnly urge you have dealings with God before tomorrow morning that when you walk through that door with good conscience before God, not me, you can say, by the grace of God, my commitment to get through my entire Bible in a reasonable frame of time once or twice a year, that commitment has been met not as a mere formality, but in a context in which I have cried that I might know an increasing measure of a real, varied, personal, original, expanding acquaintance with my God. But not only do I commend to you that this devotional assimilation of the scriptures be structured and consistent, systematic and comprehensive, but thirdly, it ought to be prayerful and meditative. It ought to be prayerful and meditative. 
By prayerful, I mean we ought consciously and consistently bow our heads over our Bibles and cry out in something of the language of Psalm 119 and verse 18, O Lord, open thou my eyes, undress my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Or the prayer at the end of Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. By prayerful, I mean taking Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah fifteen sixteen and saying, Lord, may this be my experience as I engage my mind and heart with your word today. Thy words were found. And Jeremiah does not say, and I exegeted them. And thy words were the sum and substance of my ministry to others. But he could say, thy words were found and I did eat them. And thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Brethren, do we know that reality where we've not lost any of the excitement that we had when God first saved us and a Bible that had been drudgery? I can remember for years to satisfy my conscience that maybe my profession was real. I want to say I read at least one chapter. I'm ashamed, but it's true. Many times, you know what chapter I read? Guess. Psalm 117. Two verses, shortest chapter in the Bible. So I could pillow my head saying, but Lord, I read my Bible today, I read my chapter. But oh, what a difference. When God opened my eyes and brought me out of darkness into light. And I was pedaling my bike for Western Union for 35 cents an hour. And the only bike I had was a girl's bike. It was humbling. It was one of my sister's bikes. An old blue balloon tire girl's bike. And I saved that money. And I remember when I sent in the order to the Kirkbride Company to get a Thompson Chain reference Bible with a blue Morocco leather cover. And when that Bible came, it's like it happened yesterday. I tore the uh, cardboard cover in which it came. I hugged it to my breast. And in two to three years, I wore that Bible thin. I had so many markings that were more unmarked than marked places in it. But this book came alive to me. And how rebuked I am at times when I almost feel it a drudgery to go and take the Bible that is my devotional Bible, and I've lost the excitement and the thrill of having God speak to me. Brethren, we desperately need this prayerful, meditative engagement with the Word of God. By prayerful, I mean coming, earnestly pleading with God in the language again of Paul that he would give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of himself. And by meditative, I mean that we are not merely threading words through our eyes in order to meet our daily quota of chapters read, but pondering, reflecting. I find it helpful often to read a passage out loud and say, Is this what the Lord said? And read it with certain emphases and have that come back upon my hearing aids now. I used to say upon my own ears. And then read it a different way. How did the Lord say it? When the Lord said, O faithless and unbelieving generation, 
how long shall I be with you? Is that how he said it? Or did he say, oh, faithless, unbelieving generation, how long? How did he say it? Lord, speak it to me as you spoke it to them. And you open your mind and your heart to the nuances of the word of God, reflecting upon what you have read. What does the portion teach me about my God, about my Savior, about my privileges, about my duties, about my heart? What does it teach me of the ways of God with men and with things? What does it show me of his mercy, of his judgment? It's a frightening thing when our Bible becomes a kind of toy, like the little boy who's gotten a pocket mirror, and he loves to sit around throughout the day and catch the sun in such a way that he can flash the mirror in the eyes of others. But he never turns it and looks at himself to see his dirty face and his boogers in his nose to clean up his own face. And we can be handling the word of God that way. What can I flash on the face of others? God says, no, here is the mirror by which to see yourself. And at times, brethren, our spiritual boogers aren't attractive at all. And the hairs we missed when we shaved are not becoming to us. This is what I mean by meditative. And here again, uh, Bridges is a great help to us in his comments regarding this matter of the meditative scripture, meditation upon the scriptures. And I quote from page 162 at the bottom. This difficulty of handling the word of God professionally springs out of the peculiar self-deception by which we are apt to merge our personal in our professional character and in the minister to forget the Christian. But time must be found for the spiritual feeding upon scriptural truths as well as for a critical investigation of their meaning or for a ministerial application of their message. For if we should study the Bible more as ministers than as Christians, more to find matter for the instruction of our people than food for the nourishment of our own souls, we neglect to place ourselves at the feet of the divine teacher. Our communion with him is cut off and we become mere formalists in our sacred profession. Again, quoting Henry Martin, seems to have been tenderly conscious of this temptation. Quote, every time that I open the scriptures, my thoughts are about a sermon or an exposition so that even in private I seem to be reading in public. We cannot live by feeding others or heal ourselves by the mere employment of healing our people. And therefore, by this course of official service, our familiarity with the awful realities of death and eternity may be rather like the gravedigger, the physician, the soldier, rather than the man of God. Let me be taught, notice the quote in the footnote, that the first and great business on earth is the sanctification of my own soul, so shall I be rendered more capable also of performing the duties of the ministry in a holy and a solemn manner. Mark it well, my brethren, especially you men 
who I trust I can rightly address as younger brethren. It is here in the battle of the basics, in these trenches of spiritual warfare, that the issues are won or lost. If God spares you, I'm prepared to prophesy that probably the most telling thing about you 10, 20, 30 years from now is this. Did you win or lose the battle here? In this place of structured, systematic, principled commitment to the devotional assimilation of the word of God. It is here, I say, the battle is most likely to be won or to be lost. And it's at this point that I want to say a word by way of a little addendum of what I have found in the past, particularly the past, I think, 10 years. I sit at my desk and I look at my shelves and I see all the books that have never been read or only partially read. And I say, hey, I'm living now not on borrowed time, but bonus time. Next month, God willing, I will have used up three of that 10 bonus years. I'll be 73 years old. And I say, if I live to be 85, there's still a lot of those books I'm never going to read. But there's one book I really want to know what it says. And so in the past 10 years, I have, for the most part, in conjunction with my consecutive reading from the Old and the New Testament, I've sought to obtain commentaries, ones that are older, many of them newer, that they are critically accurate, but they don't take your mind down the path of the critical stuff. But they really seek to open up the text. And I have found tremendous blessing in parallel reading through commentary after commentary that has helped me to know my Bible. Right now in my New Testament reading in the book of Acts, though I'm grieved at some of the uh, doctrinal aberrations into which he's gone, John Stott's commentary on Acts in the Bible Speaks Today series has made me read the book of Acts like I'd never read it before. It's brought me to the point of being shouting happy again and again as he has with one stroke of a sentence opened up things that I said, you dummy, you've read that passage now over the course of your 55 years as a Christian at least 55 times. How many times have you read it to preach? You never saw that, you dummy. Thank you, Lord. And it's just made the word of God come alive. And likewise, uh, many other commentaries, the Pillar series edited by Don Carson, uh, the book of John, I've gone through twice that way. It's made the book of John open up and all of those, O'Brien on Ephesians and the several by Douglas Moo and then Kraus or Christ, whatever his last name is, uh, from Australia. Excellent material. I urge you, brethren, to prayerfully consider this. Remember, Whitfield said he read Matthew Henry through, I forgot how many times, on his knees. That's where he learned his theology. That's where the passion for Christ and for the souls of men and a balanced experimental Calvinistic divinity got into the bloodstream of Whitfield. 
And so when I talk about devotional reading of the scriptures, I'm not talking about what some of us were around and perhaps to some measure got caught up in, uh, in our early Christian experience where you're threading your, uh, the words through your eyes waiting for the divine light, for something to jump out and to hit you and to smack you. No, you're coming with your mind engaged. But it's engaged not to feed others, but to feed your own soul. Now, granted, eventually it's going to spill out in one way or another, but the conscious, deliberate focus of your engagement with the Scriptures is not the feeding of another, but the feeding of your own soul. And so I commend to you, brethren, with all of my heart, never get weary of having someone remind you that you've got to have your devotions. I used to be embarrassed to sound this note in pastor's conference until pastors began to get honest with me. And we begin to talk about the struggles of the Christian life and have men of God who've been used of God for decades say, to this day, the greatest battle is the maintenance of this kind of devotional assimilation of the Word of God. It's where the battle was engaged with me this morning. I didn't get to bed till somewhere around 11 last night, set the alarm clock for relatively early, woke up earlier than the alarm clock, and there the battle was engaged. Albert, you're going to have the nerve to stand and tell these men that they ought to be committed to a systematic, prayerful, regular assimilation of the Word of God for the feeding of their own souls, and in the language of Murphy, should not be turned aside with trivialities. Are you going to do that and rationalize? Well, you're lecturing three times today, and you want to have your lecture all in hand. Surely you can skimp a little on your reading in Second Samuel, and in your reading in Acts, and in your verse or two from... That's where the battle was engaged, brethren. I kid you not. I'm not being dramatic. That's where the battle was engaged. Now, whether just, I hope, I hope there's more motivation than merely being able to stand and look you in the eye and say, I have a good conscience. And I had to fight with that and say, Lord, my heart's so naughty that I could be coming to my devotions not to meet with you, but to brag before the men. Yeah, I'm that carnal. But by the grace of God, God met me in the Word this morning. I can stand before you and say, before this book is held out and opened up and applied to you men, it's ripped into the heart and into the soul and refreshed and renewed the soul of this old man. And that's where the battle will be engaged tomorrow morning and the next morning and the next morning and the next morning. And I finally have got it. I've said, Lord... It's going to be this way till I cross the river or until I hear the voice of the archangel and the shout of God. And I've given up thinking the battle's going to be engaged somewhere else. And that's a great help. I don't need to look around where the battleground is. There it is, right there. Now, Lord, help me to engage it and come off a victor in Christ. May God help us, brethren, to have dealings with God in this matter if those dealings are needed. So that come tomorrow morning, we will be men committed with new levels of holy resolve 
in dependence upon Christ and the power of the Spirit to pursue that resolve with any degree of consistency. Well, let's pray and ask God to help us to that end. Our Father, we confess with shame the reality of our remaining sin that there should be in any one of us who have been redeemed by your grace, who have tasted and seen that you are good, that there should be in us anything approaching an aversion to close heart dealings with you. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Cleanse us, we pray, from all of that sin of aversion to close dealings with you in your word. We thank you that we can say we delight in your law after the inner man, but we do find another law warring against the law of our minds. Help us in the strength of Christ to be overcomers. O Lord, help each of these men. Help the men who will subsequently listen to these lectures that in this area of commitment to the devotional assimilation of the Scriptures, there would be an unswerving resolve, a resolve then enabled by the Holy Spirit to be men who feed upon your word. Hear then our prayer and answer us. We plead in Jesus' name. Amen.